Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boudou of the Axios Today Podcast, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's dive right in. As milestones go, the one we passed not once but twice this week isn't one we should be celebrating. We're pushing our ecosystems and our climate into a different place than it's been for the entirety of human civilization. And that is alarming. Since we started keeping records, our planet has never been hotter. The average global temperature for Tuesday and Wednesday came in at just under 63 degrees Fahrenheit, and that followed a short-lived heat record set on Monday. Helping us keep things cool this week is Eva McKend, CNN's national politics reporter. Also with us is Ali Vitali. She covers politics and the race for 2024 for NBC News. She's the author of Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. And Steve Clemens. Steve is the founding editor-at-large for Semaphore. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's start with a story that broke when most of us were paying little attention to the news. In the hours before Tuesday's fireworks, a federal judge in Louisiana ruled the Biden administration likely violated the First Amendment by pushing social media companies to censor misinformation over the course of the pandemic. U.S. District Court Judge Terry Doty, a Trump appointee, called the efforts, quote, Orwellian, and he issued a preliminary injunction. It bars federal officials and agencies from having any contact with social media firms for the purpose of discouraging or removing First Amendment protected speech. Steve, there's a fair bit to unpack here. Can we just start with what everyone needs to know about this lawsuit and injunction? Well, what the judge in Louisiana uh, has has indicated is that the Biden administration, by urging or encouraging, pressuring, inducing uh, the removal or deletion of social media commentary, is violating the First Amendment rights and trying to squelch those who oppose it. It's a remarkable decision because uh, there are lots of arenas, and particularly during COVID and Uh, the challenges with misinformation about a national health crisis, but also more broadly about hate speech and others that would um, not allow any, not just coordination, but even consultation and communication between these huge social media platforms uh, and those concerned by, over, over the public interest by the government. Um, And so that's the first step of of, of happening, of looking at this as a first amendment uh, violation versus a public interest or even a public health challenge where the the government has been worried about the toxicity and the misinformation that's out there, as, as have many in the private sector. 
We got this comment from Jasper. By the way, you can also uh, weigh in on the show by emailing 1A at WAMU.org. Jasper says, I'm a college student aiming for a degree in health education. I'm concerned about the blocking of the Biden administration's ability to monitor and remove disinformation, especially after a deadly pandemic that cost so many lives. Having platforms of people who openly endorse ideas that harm communities is dangerous, and this ruling will cause harm to American citizens. Steve, is that basically what the Biden administration also said in response to this ruling? Well, basically, it says, you know, the Biden administration is not removing content or ordering the removal of content. It's essentially consulting. I was taken with one person from the Knight Foundation, which is very um, uh, focused on press freedom and First Amendment rights. And this person says it can't be that government violates First Amendment by engaging platforms on on, uh, uh, decisions and policies that have to do with content. And so there's a you know, sort of large ecosystem out there and saying, you know, at, at, you know, when you kind of look at what the free speech lines ought to be, you, know, you also have these court decisions that you can't scream fire in a you know, crowded marketplace or a crowded theater. And I think this may come along those lines where the Biden administration, the Biden White House says it is going to appeal that decision and take it further because it would remove um, the ability of the federal government from weighing in on anything. Now, the, the judge's decision did say in matters of crime or terrorism or foreign interference with elections, coordination and co- communication between the administration and social media platforms can happen in those cases. But they're going to challenge uh, this broader reading that said no cons- consultation, which many people uh, on the conservative right are somehow happy about this. I wouldn't be uh, if I were because they sort of look at it as an opportunity. They feel wrongly um, uh, constrained in the past. And and essentially, I think that we've got a sort of a narrow cast. There were some folks um, have have wanted to have the freedom essentially to do what, what I consider to be sort of industrial level fabrication of information, particularly during a national health crisis. Right. Steve, to your point, the ruling has been welcomed by many Republicans. Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt is one of them. On Wednesday, he spoke to Fox News. We need to have oversight now. I've also, you know, filed legislation to make sure if big tech companies are doing this, they do lose uh, Section 230 protections. But we also need to have a hammer with government officials who are involved in this. And I intend to move forward with legislation in that regard, too. The First Amendment is our pressure release valve. Everybody should be able to have a say in the town square, including the virtual town square. And the government doesn't have any business telling people what they can see and hear in that virtual town square. That was Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt. He was Missouri's attorney general when the state filed the lawsuit alongside Louisiana's attorney general. Ali, to how much of this is really about how Republicans are viewing the First Amendment versus maybe Democrats? A lot of it, especially when you consider this not just through the lens of the COVID-19 pandemic, though certainly I think the person who wrote into the show and also the conversation that we've been having so far rightly focuses on the role of the government talking with private companies that all of us live on these social media platforms, and especially in a period of time like COVID, there was so much confusion. I think it made sense for the government to try to make sense of the mis- and disinformation that was happening online, especially because people were just so hungry for what the right thing to do and, and what the smart thing to do in that moment was. But this conversation is inextricably linked with election security. And when we talk about the fact that there's a pretty slippery slope between the idea that the government can talk to these social media companies about uh, foreign interference, that's clearly something that we've been dealing with over the course of the last two elections, both in 2016 
and of course in 2020. And I think that's one of the things that when I think about what the far-reaching and future implications of this could be, Yes, it's on the public health side, but it's also very clearly on the election security side. As we watched, and we all remember, I think, because we live on these social media platforms, what it looked like on Twitter and on Instagram to have people marking posts about Trump having won an election that he actually lost, marking those posts as wrong and not actually factual was important, I think, in combating a lot of the things that we saw eventually manifest into things like the January 6th insurrection. I mean, you need a foundational platform that can tell you what's real and what's not. And I think that's where this goes next. When you have you know, judges ruling, this is clearly not going to be the last kind of ruling on this. We're going to watch this work its way through appeals. But certainly that's one of the concerns. It's not just about public health. It's about election integrity and security online. Attention has fallen on federal judge Terry Doty. Ellie Honig is a former federal and state prosecutor and a senior legal analyst for CNN, and he says this ruling is significant. You're not allowed, administration, to talk to these social media companies about any protected free speech except for cybersecurity threats, national security threats, criminal threats. But where's the line? Who's going to police this? This is a judge trying to micromanage the day-to-day regular activities of the entire executive branch. I don't mean this necessarily as a criticism. This is a very activist judicial opinion. Eva, you're spending time on the campaign trail on the road with candidates. What are Democrats saying about this? Well, this lawsuit is an extension of a longtime political grievance of conservatives, but it has huge First Amendment implications. We have seen Democrats push back against this, raise concerns about the public health implications, the the note that Ali raised about election security and is also an important one. I mean, but this is something that that conservatives have made their battle cry. Congressman Ken Buck has an entire book about this uh, called Crushed, Big Tech's War on Free Speech. So this is a huge win for them. I don't know how much the details of the specific case are going to feature on the campaign trail, but this larger theme, this larger grievance that Republicans have been silenced on social media will continue, I I think, to be a, a, a battle cry for Republicans. I'm curious to see what Governor Asa Hutchinson will say about this. He, of course, is running for president, and he said that he's going to address this in a bigger fashion. He is someone that I think really tries to be nuanced on a number of issues. So I wonder if, if, if he, what more he'll have to say ultimately about this. That being said, for all the acrimony that conservatives have about social media, they're on all these platforms getting their message out. So as much as they spend time saying that they are being silenced, um, they're on there using these platforms just like the left is. We're rounding up the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. 
This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep on the social media theme. Threads was released this week, a record number of downloads. Uh, Let's start. Eva, how much time have you spent on Threads already this week, the new app from Meta? Oh, just a little bit. I am a new Thread user. Um, And I see that the candidates have made their way on there as well. This is really a surprise hit for Meta. And they're arguably in in need of a win uh, after being scrutinized for spreading misinformation. And it seems like everything wrong with the the internet uh, meta is blamed for it. So this is kind of a a surprise blockbuster for them. So many people, millions have already, upwards of 30 million have already signed up. I see that Senator Tim Scott is on there. And um, I guess, what do you call a thread? I put out a thread. I can't. You posted a thread? I'm so inclined to say a tweet. I think you posted posted a thread. They put a video on Instagram saying how you're supposed to talk about it. I think it's posted a thread. Posted a thread. Okay, he posted a thread with his mom on the campaign trail. So this is actually helpful for journalists because this is going to be another sort of tool that we can use to kind of monitor campaign strategy and see what the candidates are doing out on the trail. But yes, lots of folks, including myself, are threading. (laughs) You are one. I am also of the more than 30 million downloads in 16 hours breaking a record. So we'll be keeping track of that. This week, we learned of another way former President Donald Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election. The Washington Post reported that Trump pressured then-Republican governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, to change his state's election results. Biden took the state by less than 11,000 votes. Steve, Trump famously also pressured Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to overturn the 2020 election results in his favor. How important is this new information about Arizona? Well, I think the the relevance of it both, you know, and I think all of these pieces fit together with the Georgia Fulton County case, but also separately what uh, special counsel Jack Smith is looking to in terms of uh, the President Trump's involvement in the January 6th activities is both preceding actions by President Trump and a pattern of actions by President Trump. Um, We know that Governor Doug Ducey, um, you know, has said repeatedly that while he didn't want to uh, uh, you know, have a conflict with Trump, that he proceeded and certified uh, the Arizona election results. But in the process, we learned that not only President Trump called, but also Vice President Mike Pence called several times related to the election. Pence denies uh, trying to influence or pressure Ducey, but it showed a pattern of the White House attempting to use every lever it saw it could to try to go back in these elections that were fairly close to being determined and set and and asking those governors or asking those secretaries of state. And we now know that Jack Smith has subpoenaed uh, the uh, uh, secretary of state office in Arizona, uh, potentially related to this. And so you saw a pattern of activity where the president was really trying to get people to change the results. Right. NBC's reporting this week. Um, there's those reports confirmed. Special counsel Jack Smith did subpoena Arizona Secretary of State's office sometime this week. Of course, Jack Smith is investigating former President Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Ali, do we know what information Special Counsel Smith wants from Arizona? 
Yeah, specifically looking at information, according to our NBC reporting, about the pair of lawsuits that were filed in the aftermath of the election, one by the former president's campaign and the other by the Arizona Republican Party chair, Kelly Ward. Both of those were claiming errors and fraud that tainted the 2020 presidential election. And of course, we know that both of those lawsuit challenges ultimately failed, just like the string of other lawsuits that we saw the Trump campaign and other allies try to bring about in other states, including Pennsylvania and other. But this also really feeds into what we were talking about before when it comes to mis- and disinformation around elections and the fact that in this country, you need to have election integrity and you need to have the population be able to trust what the electorate has said and done. This is where the Trump campaign and its allies came in in 2020 and tried to muddy the waters. When you see, of course, that there were tight margins in places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, that states that had gone previously red were now flipping blue. This is what happens in campaigns sometimes. But nevertheless, we watched the Republican side of the aisle, specifically through the Trump campaign, try to take advantage of of some of the confusion that came from voting in a pandemic and others. I also think what's fascinating is it's very rare that we get to see what the special counsel is looking at and how he's approaching his probe into January 6th and potential election interference. But this is now a clue that it's wide ranging. And of course it is because you look at states that were close and where we watched the then Trump campaign try to potentially uh, pressure election officials. We know some of this from watching the January 6th committee, but of course now we know that he's talking not just to election officials in Georgia, but also to election officials in Arizona. And it again just kind of gives us a blueprint of where the special counsel's probe is, what the strategy is that he's employing, and all of that is so fascinating as this investigation continues happening. Former Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers told CNN this week he spoke with the FBI about Trump's election meddling. There was I offered them nothing new. Uh, they seemed to have a good grasp on all of the testimony that I'd given. There may have been something that I said that was of interest, but I don't remember anything standing out that had not been mentioned before. Bowers did not say whether he was subpoenaed by special counsel Smith. He did go on to say Trump's team eventually gave him the evidence of voter fraud, but it was, quote, hardly the proof that I sought. Eva, Bowers publicly testified before the January 6th committee last summer. What more might he add to this story now? Well, he could have details. I think they're trying to figure out if he has details about a systematic pressure campaign potentially orchestrated by Trump and his allies. It's clear that state pressure is a focus. And people actually forget about Arizona. There's a lot of talk about Georgia. But remember, President Biden just won by some 10,000 votes. So this is a state that is vitally important. It's going to continue to be important next cycle. And it appears that Jack Smith is trying to connect the dots and looking for themes and patterns. The Washington Post also reports Trump also tried to get former Vice President Mike Pence to pressure Ducey, although unsuccessfully. Pence said his calls with Ducey after the election were routine when he spoke to CBS's Face the Nation last Sunday. I did check in uh, with uh, not only Governor Ducey, but other governors in states that were going through the legal process of reviewing their election results. But uh, there was no pressure involved. This was an orderly process. You'll remember there were more than 60 lawsuits underway. States were engaging in appropriate reviews, and that uh, these contacts were no more than that. 
Ali, this week, Pence defended his actions to certify the 2020 election results when an Iowa voter told him, quote, if it wasn't for your vote, we wouldn't have Joe Biden in the White House. What line is Pence trying to walk right now out on the campaign trail? This is really a tough one for Pence, and we've watched him have to grapple with January 6th over the course of the last year, really, since leaving the White House. We know, of course, that that was a major inflection point in his relationship with the former president, and it was always going to be true that anyone running in this Republican primary, especially the folks who were in the Trump administration, were going to have to walk the line of contrasting from the former president while also not overly alienating themselves from the kind of Trump base that they're going to need to pull people of if they have any hope of trying to take the nomination. For Pence, though, as not only a member of the Trump-Pence administration, but also the person who Trump really focused so much of his energy on saying all of this could have been avoided if Mike Pence effectively voided the election results of 2020, Pence has been consistent in saying that he just didn't think that he had the constitutional power of being able to do that. And certainly, that's something that I think many of us already knew to be true, which is that vice presidents are ceremonial in certifying election results, but certainly cannot come in and unilaterally say, actually, I disagree with the election results. Let's change them. Pence, though, on the campaign trail, the fact that he was asked about this by voters, I think it's a good reminder for all of us that there is a large swath of the Republican electorate, especially those who would vote in primaries, who not only listened to former President Trump say that the election was stolen from him, but who really took that to heart and who believe it. And the fact that Pence now has to not only go out there and defend this, but also try to change the minds of people who do not have trust in our elections and the 2020 election— I think is a really good reminder of sort of the state of play within Republican politics right now. To that point, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes thinks Trump doesn't have a chance of winning in federal court. He spoke to The Washington Times from a jail in D.C. Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy in the January 6th attack on the Capitol and sentenced to 18 years in prison. Rhodes said, quote, they're going to do the same thing to President Trump that they did to me. Eva, if there is a conviction for President Trump, is it likely that it will be dismissed by the far right as these January 6 convictions have been? Oh, very likely. What we have seen on the campaign trail is people only run closer to Trump in the wake of these indictments. I was at the Faith and Freedom Conference a few weeks ago here in D.C. I was speaking to voters in from Pennsylvania, from Indiana, and they told me in their communities in the wake of the indictments, it's only reinforced support for the former president. So we are really in uncharted territory here, but... All indications are that uh, this has only been rallying more support for him. We've even heard that in sort of an off-mic moment from the DeSantis campaign, concerns about how all of Trump's legal battles have actually strengthened him with a, a segment of the base. Speaking of Trump's court cases, this week Trump's valet pleaded not guilty to helping the former president hide classified documents in his Mar-a-Lago mansion. Walt, Nata, and Trump both face federal charges, including conspiracy to obstruct justice. Trump pleaded not guilty last month. Steve, how might Trump and Nata be treated differently in this case? 
Well, I think that Walt Nacha, the, the challenge that Walt Nacha had and his importance in this is that his case was preceding the ability to proceed with Trump's case. And now this is set for jury selection in December and beginning that process. It was sort of a, a, a pre-step to beginning with Trump. But I think the broad side is Walt Nacha, who, who, who pleaded not guilty when he was arraigned, um, is in a different situation where where Trump has looked at as the principle of this. Walt Nacho is being challenged for uh, potentially obstructing justice and and for concealing his his role in moving these documents. But the charges against Donald Trump on this in this sort of conspiracy case are far far more serious and more extensive. So the Nacho case is just sort of a preamble, if you will, to a much larger challenge against President Trump. Let's turn to student loans. The Department of Education says student loan borrowers must resume payments in October, but with some concessions. We know that figuring out how to pay these added expenses can take time for borrowers, and they might miss payments at the front end as they get back into repayment. Normally, this could lead borrowers to fall into delinquency and default. But without their financial, it will hurt their financial security, and that's not good for them or the economy. That's why we're creating a temporary 12-month what we're calling on-ramp repayment program. President Biden announced the new loan repayment plan in his response to the Supreme Court ruling last week that shot down his $400 billion student loan forgiveness program. Eva, how does this new plan differ from the student loan pause that's been in effect since March 2020? Well, borrowers who can't make a payment won't be penalized for the first 12 months. Um, There's an income-driven Repayment portion to this, that would cut the minimum payment in half from 10% of discretionary income to 5%. But progressives are pushing back against this and saying that this is really insufficient. I mean, this is a far cry than what would have been accomplished if the Supreme Court did not strike strike this down. Uh, We know that, that interest will reactivate immediately, and that is a bone of contention for many on the left, but some are noting that the reason why that uh, interest will be reactivated immediately is because that was part of the the deal that the White House struck earlier this year with Kevin McCarthy, the debt ceiling deal. So this is an issue that I think that, that the administration, that the White House will sort of point squarely at Republicans and argue, well, you know, we we did the best that we could. But I think that there is the feeling on the left, especially with voters I speak with, that that the left really offered some false hope here. And that is why we are in this position. Before we head to the break, here's some news from the file marked Ark of the Covenant, and it is not good. More than 40 years on from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford's wick-cracking return has failed to impress. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny made $130 million at the global box office on its opening weekend. Experts say that number is underwhelming because the movie cost almost $300 million to make. So it's unlikely to make a profit in cinemas. I hate to bring this up, but it was Indy himself who said... It belongs in a museum. Back with more after this quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. 
That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a look at another Supreme Court case. In another major decision at the end of their term last week, the Supreme Court detailed protect curtailed protections for LGBTQ plus Americans. Seven years ago, Christian web designer Lori Smith sued the state of Colorado because she didn't want to design wedding websites for same-sex couples. Last week, a 6-3 majority of the Supreme Court sided with her. CNN spoke with Smith after the ruling. I create speech for a living. When speech is involved, speech should be protected. This protects not just me, the LGBT website designer, the Jewish calligrapher, the Democrat speechwriter, the pro-life photographer. We all benefit from the court's ruling yesterday. That was website designer Lori Smith. Eva, the majority opinion was penned by Colorado's own Neil Gorsuch. Why did the court say that Smith has a right to refuse to work for same-sex couples? Yeah, the Supreme Court says essentially this is about the First Amendment, that it entitles this web designer to refuse same-sex wedding work. Uh, This would essentially carve out a significant exception to public accommodation laws, laws that in most states bar discrimination based on sexual orientation. But they, she argued that that this law requiring her to serve everyone equally, um, that it wasn't fair. And the court agreed with her. Even though the origins of this case are suspect, um, if you actually try to track down Stuart and Mike, um, which she argued were the couple that was asking her to design their website or do some design work for them, it's not clear that they actually even exist. But nonetheless, uh, the Supreme Court sided with her on on along ideological lines. So further illustration of the huge impact that former President Trump had on the makeup of the court. Right. Just back to your point, Eva, Steve, the man who supposedly submitted this request says he did not. Does this have any effect on the ruling? Well, the man, Stuart, is not gay, has been married for 15 years. Uh, and and uh, when you ask the bottom line question, will it affect the ruling? No, they've already weighed in and said that because of the threat of, you know, essentially pre-enforcement potential consequences against this person in what is looks like a fabricated case, a fabricated incident that was brought uh, through the court process with no one doing the due diligence of going back and looking at that underlying case, which may have just been invented uh, and looks like it was. Uh, but when it comes to the Supreme Court ruling, it's already 
said that 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 particular real life case doesn't matter to the ruling. So this was an invented case in a case that was brought into the Supreme Court. They wanted to rule on this. And many uh, uh, court uh, observers and legal scholars have said this is an extraordinary act. And very few times has an invented case ever been brought forward with this much uh, potential impact. You know, it really is saying you know, it goes back to that. We're not going to serve those kind here or those people who are married in a same-sex marriage here. And they're elevating uh, that, what, what I think Eva just said in terms of uh, accommodation laws uh, over, you know, uh, in giving you know, what they call speech primacy over that. Um, so it's an extraordinary moment, an extraordinary case in something that was invented. In her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote that the majority was giving businesses a, quote, new license to discriminate. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser agrees. This sweeping opinion promises to destabilize the public marketplace, enabling and encouraging all types of businesses, not just those who make websites, to have a First Amendment right to refuse customers because of who they are. That was Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. Allie, what precedent does this decision set for how LGBTQ rights are or are not protected more broadly? Or is this really more narrow in the scope of when they come up against this religious accommodation issue? I think that's going to be the question going forward. When we watch the ways that this court sets new precedents and how that then manifests in the public sphere, I think this is one of the things that both sides of this battle are going to be seizing on. Of course, you have Democrats who are echoing what you just played, which is that this is now yet another battlefront for discrimination, in this case, along the lines of sexual preference. But this can also be applied in other arenas. Discrimination broadly, I think, is the central question here. Of course, in this case, they're arguing that there's a religious liberties carve out effectively. But I do think that this is going to be one of the next battlefronts. And I also think that as we then look at this in the ways that it could manifest just outside of the legal sphere, and we take it, for example, to the place where Eva and I hang out, out on the campaign trail, this is something that for Republicans, they have used, and I have been out on the road listening to candidates like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and others, using this as a galvanizing issue, the court broadly, whether it be on this ruling, on the affirmative action ruling, on student loan forgiveness, any of these things. And of course, that's nothing to say of how they're talking about Dobbs. This court has really been a vehicle for conservatives to see many of their priorities play out. And by contrast, for Democrats, it has been a rallying cry on issues, previously abortion. Now we'll see the way that they leverage it on things like affirmative action. Going forward, it's a political hot topic, and the court is just still as central as it ever was to many of these key battles that we're watching play out in the political arena. Right, Ali, to your point, the Dobbs decision was just over a year ago, that overturning of Roe versus Wade. Now, the abortion may be on the ballot again in November, this time in Ohio. This week, abortion rights groups in Ohio turned in a petition which, with 710,000 signatures to the Secretary of State's office in a bid to let voters decide on a constitutional amendment protecting abortion rights. Eva, how close is this amendment to getting on this year's ballot in Ohio? Yeah, I mean, this is the latest frontier in this state-by-state battle for abortion rights. Um 
pro-abortion activists, people trying to preserve you know, what's left of reproductive care in this country have seen that they have had success through this avenue. And this is why we see so many states, um, advocates in different states pursuing this. Right. It appears that state election officials now have until July 25th to verify the signatures. But Republican leaders in the legislature, they're responding in kind, trying to push back against this. They've placed a measure on the primary ballot in August that would actually raise the threshold required to pass any ballot measure amending the state's constitution to 60 percent from a simple majority. So as we see more and more reproductive rights activists trying to use uh, ballot measures as a vehicle, what we're seeing is pushback from Republicans to try to make this uh, process as difficult as possible so they can't be successful in this front. I will note that a public religion research institute poll uh, last year showed that 66 percent of Ohio residents said abortion should be legal in all or most cases. So uh, this is an issue that doesn't fall neatly on political lines. What we saw in uh, Kansas, for instance, is some people cross the aisle and actually support uh, reproductive uh, care, even if they identified as a conservative. Right. So in 2022, we saw voters decide two ballot measures in favor of abortion rights, one in Kansas, one in Kentucky. Uh, Allie, uh, to Eva's point, do we have any sense of how likely Ohio is to go in this? Well, look, I think that this is really one of the next battlefronts. And I've been fascinated about this specific way that Ohio Republicans specifically are trying to add roadblocks because, of course, the post-Roe reality really upended a lot of the conventional wisdom about how red states would vote versus how blue states would vote. I mean, even look at the way that in the 2022 midterms, you saw Democrats be able to hold on to seats in places like Kansas, which are typically ruby red. There were frontliners who had millions of dollars invested in their races because they were the, th- the places that the Democratic Party thought they needed to shore up. Then you watch where Democrats lost seats, places like New York, a blue state. And one of the explanations that can be offered is that in the redder states where abortion restrictions were already at play, voters were pushing back against that. Whereas for voters in blue states where abortions were more protected, or at least voters felt that they were, they were a little bit more uh, able or open to voting for Republican candidates. That's one of the explanations that strategists gave me in the aftermath of the 2022 midterms. And so when you push that forward, you watched since those 2022 midterms, uh, judicial elections in places like Wisconsin going in favor of the pro-choice candidates. Now I think Ohio could be another moment for that. And I also think you can't talk about this moment in repro politics in Ohio without applying it to what could happen next November. There's one of the hottest Senate races happening in Ohio right now, Sherrod Brown as an incumbent, he's someone who was able to keep his seat in 2018 in a similarly tough environment, theoretically, for red state Democratic senators. His brand in the state is strong, but all the organizing, those 700,000 plus signatures on abortion advocacy right now, all of that will end up being parlayed into voter get out the vote by the Democratic Party in Ohio. And again, this is a ruby red state. We've seen it trend consistently more red over the course of the last few cycles. Nevertheless, the fact that you're seeing this kind of grassroots involvement, I think, matches why Democrats still feel so positive about trying to leverage the energy and intensity around reproductive access. It's because they're seeing it in real time on the ground and in elections. 
Ellie, how are GOP candidates walking the line talking about this on the campaign trail? Yeah, I mean, Republican candidates have been struggling with this. I think Eva and I have both seen them do this in front of our faces. But I know when I interviewed Senator Tim Scott just a few weeks ago for NBC, we went back and forth just trying to pin him down over what the right week mark would be in terms of the abortion bans that he would push if he were elected to the presidency. I think this is a central question, and frankly, it's the thing that makes the 2024 test of the post-Roe environment different than the 2022 test, which is that we know presidential tickets, when you are in a presidential cycle, set the tone so much for each national party When you have people in the Republican Party, like Ron DeSantis, for example, a leading candidate underneath Trump in the GOP primary, setting six-week abortion bans in his state, that's something that then trickles down through the rest of the party. And it puts all of these other candidates at the Senate level, the gubernatorial level, and even further down the ballot on defense on this issue, especially for the reason that Eva pointed out, which is that the Republican Party on this Broadly, the more restrictive they get, the more out of step they are with the broader American public, six in 10 of whom say that abortion should be safe and legal in most cases. It's why we're not hearing Republicans necessarily trumpet or crow about this, but it is something they need to both speak to their base about and then also be able to win in a general election. And I have to tell you, I've met voters, Republicans, on the campaign trail who say they worry about where their party is on this issue because they don't know that it's a viable position to be so pro-restrictions on abortion care in a general election. Eva, I saw you nodding your head there. Do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I mean, Ali is is absolutely right. That's why sometimes it's hard to get a definitive response from some of these candidates on this issue. And now the sort of the right wing apparatus is leaning on the candidates to at least take a firm position on a 15 week national abortion ban. That's a position that would be a real liability in a general election. So I think that this issue is going to continue to be front and center throughout this election. And as much as it might be music to the ears of Christian evangelical voters uh, in Iowa to take an extreme position on abortion, you, you know, you have to also think about the whole election, the whole game. And outside of these primary and caucus, this, the caucus and these primaries, that is a much harder uh, general election argument. Steve, you want to weigh in also? When I interviewed uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie on this, he said that the line here that he's following, and I think you've seen this also to some degree from uh, Nikki Haley, is that this is not a, a, a federal mandate issue, this is what states' rights. And each state is not, you know, we're not going to have one size fits all around the nation. We'll have different communities, you know, dictating this term along this way. So that's one way that a consensus is going to be avoided. And so when you ask, you know, kind of how are Republicans talking about this, they're talking about it in different ways. And each one of them is trying to find, in my view, a slightly different way. As as I think Eva just said with Tim Scott, uh, you know, Tim is out there trying to avoid big blanket judgments on lengths of weeks and whatnot, and trying many trying to stay away from the DeSantis six-week uh, mandate. So, uh, but the big, I think one of the big lines is between federal authorities and state authorities. 
Some news we have out this morning, the new job numbers are in. U.S. employers added 209,000 jobs in June for another solid month for the labor market, but that's a little lower than expected. At the same time, the jobs data for the previous two months were revised lower, with 110,000 fewer jobs created in April and May than previously reported. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate edged down 3.6 percent last month from 3.7 percent in May. NPR says the slowdown in job growth compared to previous months shows the Fed's rate hikes are having an impact, although the Fed has already said it'll need to continue raising interest rates to bring down inflation. Let's end on one final story. New York seems to have a shark problem. Over the holiday weekend, at least four shark bites were reported along the coast of Long Island. The attacks resulted in non-life-threatening injuries. I'm just going to throw this out. Does anyone want to talk about sharks here in our last 30 seconds? Steve? Uh, this, this is where I'm, I'm at New York in Long Island, was on Fire Island Beach, was on, along some of these other beaches, and people are freaked out. Uh, you know, I there, mean, I can imagine they would be. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of bites, but you know, they, we've also know in 2022, there were also a lot of bites. But what's really interesting is before 2022, there were like 12 recorded shark bites in history. So something's going on. There's a lot more sharks and a lot more people all of a sudden having an encounter off the off Long Island. But but people are definitely noticing and it's all over TikTok. All right. Well, everyone, stay safe out there. My thanks this week go to CNN's Eva McKend, Ali Vitelli at NBC News, and Steve Clemens, founding editor-at-large at Semaphore. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, congratulations are in order for Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. The couple is the longest married first couple, marking their 77th wedding anniversary today. Former President Carter is 98 and has been in home hospice care since February. The former First Lady is 95. It was announced last month that she had been diagnosed with dementia. The couple married on July 7, 1946, in Plains, Georgia, their hometown. According to the Associated Press, it was Carter's mother, a nurse, that delivered baby Rosalind. Days later, Jimmy, a preschooler, met the new baby. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup, record temperatures this week around the world, and the King of the Netherlands apologizes for his country's role in the Atlantic slave trade. All that and more still ahead. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. Let's get into this global edition of the News Roundup. Two weeks after the mutiny in Russia, questions are still swirling. The big one this week, where is Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin? Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko has his thoughts. As for Yevgeny Viktorovich Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg. Where is he this morning? He might travel to Moscow or he might be elsewhere, but he's not on Belarus territory. 
And I'm sure the Roundup panel has their thoughts. We'll also have news on a rare colonial mea culpa from the Netherlands. And our planet is sizzling. The hottest day is recorded on planet Earth this week, a grim milestone. This is warmth of the El Nino, the developing ocean temperatures on top of the climate change signal, which pushes us into this potential for record-breaking days, months, years to occur. Here to talk about all of that and so much more, Jennifer Williams is deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Hi, Jen. Always good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Anton LaGuardia is diplomatic editor at The Economist and author of Holy Land, Unholy War, Israelis and Palestinians. Welcome to the roundup, Anton. Very good to be here. And last but not least, my colleague Dave Lawler is a senior world reporter at Axios and author of the Axios World newsletter. Hi, Dave. Hi, Nyla. Let's start in Janine at the refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. On July 3rd, Israeli forces launched a large-scale aerial and ground offensive. The army shelled parts of the camp with unmanned missile-loaded planes. Palestinians hadn't been attacked by drones since 2006, but Israel deployed them in late June and again this week. After that, soldiers raided on foot and remained in Janine for about 48 hours. Jen, let's start with the IDF. What did Israel's defense forces say was their goal with these raids? Right. So basically, um, Israel's defense minister kind of came out and said, look, over the past two years, Janine has become a, quote, production site for terrorism. Um, They said that, you know, in the past several years, um, as many as 50 terror attacks that they cited, according to the IDF, um, emanated from Janine. So The goal of this raid, according to the IDF, was to essentially get rid of the terrorist infrastructure that was kind of growing and building up inside Janine. This is among kind of um, less organized or or less kind of well-known terrorist organizations. So uh, they are supported um, in many cases by uh, groups like Hamas and the Palestine Islamic Jihad. But these are more loosely kind of affiliated groups, a lot of younger members. But the IDF essentially said, look, there are these um, infrastructure sites, so facilities for manufacturing weapons, explosives, uh, coordinating um, offices, things like that. And the goal was to go in, arrest some of the the people that they think are being um, are involved in this activity, as well as to destroy the infrastructure itself. So they came out after the uh, operation. They said, look, this was a success. We, um, as a result of our activities, this, this you know, uh, production site has come to an end. They listed this kind of big list of um, weapons that were confiscated, explosives, the dismantling of six different facilities. They said they questioned 300 suspects, et cetera. So it was, you know, from a a tactical perspective, um, that was really kind of the goal. And according to, you know, their own analysis, uh, they are considering it and certainly portraying it as a success. There was another raid overnight in Nablus, another city in the occupied West Bank, and two Palestinians were killed. Uh, Jen, what do we know about that? Right. So in terms of the Nablus raid, what we're seeing here is that, you know, Nablus has been a little bit less uh, in the news compared to Janine, right? We've seen a lot of these these raids, excuse me, a lot of these raids happening in in Janine lately. But what we're seeing is that there is some kind of... um, maybe spreading um, of of this kind of terrorism activity that has popped up in Janine. Um, this is pretty remarkable, though, because, you know, 
less uh, common to see Nablus in places like that. Um, also places like Ramallah, less common to see these raids happening there. Um, but it seems like, you know, there was uh, this raid that took place this morning. Locals called it an invasion. Um, as you said, you know, two Palestinians were killed. So we're starting to see, I think, a little bit, um, and not to, you know, to go too far in stating this, but we are seeing some activity spreading beyond just Janine, um, both in terms of where the Israelis are paying attention and also where they are really concerned that this is uh, this kind of unrest and increased terrorist activity is starting to spread. That's one of the main reasons why Israel has said that they have undertaken this raid in Janine, because they are very concerned about the spreading even further south into areas where, you know, the Palestinian Authority has traditionally had a little bit more control um, than they have in Janine. So um, definitely not a, not a great sign. The Palestinian Ministry of Health said 12 Palestinians, including three children, were killed in the attack, while at least 120 others were wounded, including 20 who remain in critical condition. At least 3,000 people were forced to flee their homes. Anton, the Israeli military said it dismantled hundreds of explosives, cleared weapons, destroyed underground hideouts, and confiscated hundreds of thousands of dollars in, quote, terror funds. What did Janine look like after the raid ended on July 4th? Well, the first thing to say is that the word refugee camp doesn't quite capture the idea. It's not a tent city. This is essentially a built-up, very crowded Arab city uh, where fighting is very close and very nasty and causes a lot of damage both to um, uh, you know, civilian, civilians and fighters alike. Um, so you know, it, it, the scene is one of uh, you know, urban warfare, of, of rubble, of destroyed homes, of destroyed infrastructure, of cars piled up on top of masonry. And, um, uh, you know, the sort of thing that you might have seen in Iraq in its worst days and, or in Gaza during uh, various uh, incidents there. The Janine refugee camp has been home, as to your point, Anton, more than 20,000 Palestinians who were expelled from their original home, homes in 1948 during the official creation of the state of Israel. Dave, can you help us understand why Janine has become the center of these escalating tensions? Sure. So Janine is sort of the epicenter of Palestinian resistance in some ways. Uh, it's an area where the Palestinian Authority doesn't have much of a presence. This is the the um, you know Palestinian government that is nominally uh, in charge of this area, but really you have these uh, armed militia groups that um, you know uh, patrol pretty openly in the Janine refugee camp and have a lot of support within the population. Uh, there's quite a high unemployment rate, a lot of deprivation. You can kind of imagine uh, in what Anton was talking about about this you know refugee camp that has built up and added more and more people over decades without any. Uh, real solution or hopeful path for a lot of these people. It's bred a lot of resentment, understandably so. And so this is an area uh, that for the Palestinian side has been kind of, as I said, an epicenter of resistance. And from the Israeli side, uh, sort of a locus of concern uh, where they see, you know, uh, groups that might have the possibility to conduct attacks inside Israel uh, moving with a level of impunity. And so um, that's partially why they continue to conduct these raids there. Uh, it's a reminder to our audience that a raid in Janine in May 2021 killed Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Anton, to Dave's point, why are these raids becoming more extreme now? I think it's a sign. Uh, first of all, I mean, on, on the tradition of Janine, I mean, Janine was hailed by Yasser Arafat as a Janine grad. 
uh, because uh, in 2002, during the Second Intifada, there had been uh, extremely nasty fighting with uh, dozens of people uh, killed at the time. Um, so it has this, this very old tradition. In the British level, the quarter of the city uh, during uh, their occupation of the period. Why is it happening now? Why is it getting worse? I think you're seeing a, a the kind of a... Um, <clears throat> a blockage of the Palestinian peace process. Nobody believes it's going anywhere. You've got a Palestinian authority that no longer controls places like Janine. Uh, you've got and is unable to deliver on peace. It's discredited. Uh, Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president, is, you know, is old and you know, has, has not held an election uh, in many years. Uh, you've got Palestinian militants whom Israel doesn't trust to negotiate. So you have it, and, and you have the creation of this very right-wing government in Israel that wants to be tougher on terrorism. Uh, and you've got this generation of fighters who uh, answer to no organized group, and therefore Israel doesn't really have the means to exert indirect pressure as it does on Hamas and Gaza. Right. This is Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations, Riyad Mansour, speaking on Wednesday. We do not need more debates. What we need, action. We want the Security Council to act in a different way. We want the Secretary General to act in a different way. And hopefully, we will see some results. UN experts described the Janine operation as, quote, collective punishment, end quote, for the Palestinian people amounting to, quote, egregious violations of international law. Jen, the UN Security Council is meeting behind closed doors today to discuss the situation. What can we expect to come from that? Um, To be perfectly honest, not much. Um, You know, the UN Security Council uh, is notoriously, um, uh, I I guess I'll say inept, but uh, unable to really do much because, you know, the U.S. does have veto power on anything that the UN Security Council does. And the U.S. has um, historically, traditionally, almost every single time, either outright blocked or at least abstained um, from any kind of serious action to punish Israel or even um, do anything that might be seen as punishing Israel. So uh, likely to see more debate and not action, unlike um, you know what was requested. Let's turn to Iran now. On Wednesday, the International Court of Justice confirmed legal proceedings were filed against Iran. The country faces legal action over shooting down a Ukraine International Airlines flight in January 2020. Iran's air defense fired two missiles at the plane and three days later admitted to shooting it down by mistake, thinking it was a U.S. missile. In April, a court in Iran sentenced 10 armed forces personnel to prison who were part of the incident. Jen, who filed these legal proceedings against Iran? So it was four countries, um, all of whom uh, lost the bulk of the, the citizens who were on the flight. Uh, the flight killed all 176 people on board. So the four countries are Britain, Canada, Sweden, and Ukraine. So they're the ones who filed the suit. Um, this is at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Uh, I think just important uh, reminder, even though uh, it's called a court, this is not a criminal court. Um, it's Essentially, it's the highest kind of judicial forum of the United Nations. So it settles disputes between nations. It's not a criminal court. So I think it kind of goes to explain maybe people are confused why countries have brought this suit rather than the families themselves. So they are obviously doing it on behalf of the families, but they are doing it as those four countries themselves. Anton, what does Iran face if it's found guilty by the ICJ? The court is uh, – decision is supposed to be binding 
There is no appeal, but there's no means of enforcement either. So um, there are lots of decisions that the ICJ comes out with that um, are unenforceable. So it's moral suasion, I think, mainly, uh, and may p- possibly give countries cover to you know, act uh, against Iran if they choose to, say, seize assets or something. But I think that's a long way down the line. What has Iran said about this? How have they responded? Oh, they say it's all a provocation and that um, the countries are, um, you know, exaggerating uh, their writ, trying to put, uh, trying to politicize the legal process and that uh, they have been perfectly uh, transparent and have indeed um, uh, prosecuted a number of people involved, although the names haven't been mentioned and we don't know their ranks. And the families believe that actually if they exist at all, these people are low-level people rather than senior revolutionary guards who took the decision to put anti-aircraft batteries next to an airport. Also on Wednesday, the U.S. Navy said it stopped Iranian ships from seizing two commercial oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. The tankers were in international waters. Dave, how often has this does this happen? Yeah, so there are at least five previous incidents of this sort in the uh, Strait of in or around the Strait of Hormuz, which is kind of this choke point in the global oil trade. Um, Iranian vessels, according to the U.S. Navy, uh, approached uh, these oil tankers, actually fired on them. And then uh, when those oil tankers uh, had distress signals put out, the U.S. responded with drones and with vessels of its own and essentially chased off the Iranian vessels so they were not able to seize these tankers. But they have in the past successfully seized oil tankers as either a point of leverage with other countries or perhaps just to signal that, uh, you know, they're in control and a force to be reckoned with in these waters. What has the U.S. Navy said about this? Uh, The Navy has basically warned Iran repeatedly uh, against this sort of activity. Uh, Again, they say that they were successful in this. uh, Obviously, they responded militarily to it. They sent aircraft. They sent a a U.S. destroyer uh, to intervene. Um, You know, they continue to to point to this as a sign of Iran behaving lawlessly uh, and um, not adhering to the sort of laws of the seas. Uh, But they don't have a ton of additional uh, leverage over Iran in this matter beyond you know, uh, point by point, uh, you know, intervening when they see this sort of thing taking place. It's worth saying that with a lot of things that Iran does, because power is fragmented in Tehran, you never quite know who's doing what and why at any particular moment. There's a lot of factional fighting uh, uh, groups trying to uh, take advantage over each other, uh, sort of gain the advantage over each other. So you have, uh, you know, these acts that are unexplained and um, seem to come and go. Next week, we pass the 500-day mark of the Ukraine war, so let's move to that. The Biden administration announced plans to provide the Ukrainian military with military cluster munitions to use against Russian troops. Jen, what more did we learn about the details of this weapons aid package from this morning's update? Yeah, so this is uh, part of a a kind of broader military aid package worth up to around $800 million. Um, The package is going to reportedly include things like um, the cluster munitions, but also Bradley and Stryker armored vehicles, um, lots of ammunition, so rounds for howitzers and HIMARS. Those are the high-mobility artillery rocket system, which is a mouthful, hence HIMARS. 
Um, so part of a kind of much bigger package, um, Ukraine has, you know, been, um, you know, pleading with Western countries in the U.S. to move faster on getting more ammunition um, and weapons to them to help kind of boost uh, this spring counteroffensive that they're um, trying to kind of, uh, they have it underway, but it's going very slowly. It's a bit of a slog and they are going through kind of weapons and ammunition very rapidly. So that's part of this broader package. But the cluster munitions in particular are super controversial. Why is that? So these are, uh, it's the nature of the weapons themselves. So these are artillery-fired weapons. They open in the air and they release what are called submunitions or or bomblets, so little bombs. Um, These are dispersed over a large area. They are uh, supposed to explode when they land, but they don't always do that. And they can turn into duds, basically. They don't explode. And they are often, because there are uh, you know, many of them and they go over such a wide kind of dispersal area, um, they can be left behind. And, and you know, children, civilians, uh, farmers can you know, pick them up, run over them when they're plowing their fields, etc. And they can be super harmful to civilians for that reason. Um, more than 100 countries ban these weapons. Um, you're not supposed to stockpile them. They're not supposed to um, you know, transfer them. The U.S. has obviously not. We use them in Iraq and Afghanistan most recently uh, and, and elsewhere. Now, the Pentagon um, is saying that the ones that they are going to provide to Ukraine um, will have a reduced dud rate, uh, saying that, that the, the ones that they have are kind of newer. They're not the older Cold War era ones. So um, they're saying that they have a, a, a lower rate of failure to explode and that um, the rates will basically be less than 3%. So they're saying that means fewer threats to civilians. Uh, they say they have data on that. I have not seen the data on that uh, or verified that. Um, but, you know, e- even even 3% is, is still not nothing, right? So um, leaving these kind of... Um, you know, munitions behind is uh, is potentially, you know, a very serious threat to, to civilians. We got this question from Joseph, who says any exploded, any unexploded ordnance will be on Ukrainian territory threatening Ukrainians. If Ukraine determines that this risk is less than the danger of the horrors Russia is perpetrating on Ukrainians in occupied territories, isn't this Ukraine's choice to make? Yes. Yeah, so that, that was the point I was actually just going to raise. It's that the reason that Ukraine wants these munitions is because they're attacking these very well entrenched Russian positions uh, in the south and east of the country. Uh, you know, there are these are already mined. They're already there are deep Russian trenches. They're having a very difficult time breaking through these lines to a large degree. And so the idea is that these munitions can help them uh, break through and make the kinds of advances they're trying to make in the current counteroffensive. Uh, of course, the listener's point is a good one that it's Ukrainian civilians who will be bearing these risks. But of course, there's good reasons. These are so controversial. Uh, even decades after World War II, for example, there were people still dying uh, later when they, you know, uh, accidentally encountered one of these uh, bombs. So, you know, uh, there are strong arguments on both sides of the equation. And the Biden administration ultimately came down on the idea that they were more useful to Ukraine at, at the present uh, than they are dangerous to Ukrainian civilians in the longer term. Anton, I was just going to ask about that, about the Biden administration. What have they said publicly about why they feel like they are willing to use these weapons or give these weapons to Ukraine? They've said they think they are useful uh, for the reasons that Dave mentioned. Uh, It's worth noting that the Russians have them and have used them as well. And a lot of these areas are heavily mined 
uh, anyway, so already extremely dangerous to civilians. And, um, you know, the, and I think a worry of the Americans, which is unstated, uh, which is that the Ukrainians are making slow progress in their counteroffensive. Time is running out. They're taking a lot of casualties. They're getting stuck in these minefields. So they're looking for means to help them break through, uh, particularly at a time when air power, you know, the promise of air power is you know, not going to materialize for a long time. Both Ukrainian and Russian officials have accused each other of planning attacks on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Neither side has provided credible credible evidence to support these claims. Anton, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, what's been happening at Zaporizhia? Because we've been getting updates from them. Well, the Ukrainians say that the Russians have been, who, who control the site, have been mining it and placing explosives on the site. And uh, that is obviously extremely worrying. Um, you know, Ukraine was a country where you had the Chernobyl meltdown, so it has a history of nuclear accidents. Um, the bombing of the dam at Kakovska uh, means the water level in the Dnieper has fallen, and therefore there's questions about whether the cooling water can be brought up to the site. So there are already a lot of concerns, and then you have these new allegations. The IEA a few days ago said what they have been able to see uh, suggests they ha- there is no such mining. However, they have asked for further access to the site to be completely sure that there is no explosives being placed at the site, um, and they're hoping the Russians will let them do that. Dave, remind us, this is, U- this is Ukraine's largest nuclear power plant. Who's in control of it right now? It's actually Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Um, and at the moment, uh, Russia is in control. Um, there were these... Uh, allegations early on, which proved out uh, to be substantiated that Russia had basically taken the employees of the plant hostage and were forcing them to continue to operate the plant after Russia captured this territory. Um, you know, it, it, one sort of, uh, I guess, note of, of not necessarily good news, but better news in a pretty dark story is that this plant is currently in a cold shutdown mode. The reactors are not currently running. And so, you know, I was reading some analysis from nuclear experts who said this would not be a Chernobyl style disaster if there was an explosion there. It would be very dangerous in terms of radiation locally, uh, but it would not be sort of the massive Europe-wide level of concern as we saw when uh, the Chernobyl meltdown happened. On Thursday, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko announced that the leader of the Wagner Group was back in Russia. It's unclear what plans Russian President Putin has for Yevgeny Prigozhin, whose private army staged an aborted attack on Russian military leadership recently. But Lukashenko remains skeptical that Putin would take drastic steps. He's free. What will happen to him next? Well, anything can happen in life. But if you think that Putin is so vicious and vindictive as to finish him off, no, it's not going to happen. The big question, Dave, let's start with, do we know where Prigozhin is right now? Uh, We don't know exactly where he is. Uh, He's been traced sort of from Belarus. I mean, Lukashenko said that he came to Belarus as was intentionally part of this agreement he struck with Putin after he stopped his march on Moscow. He doesn't seem to have stayed in Belarus very long, if in fact he was there, because, uh, you know, aircraft uh, linked to him, traveled to Mos- uh, traveled to St. Petersburg, and then on to Moscow. Uh, it, there's sort of this two-track thing happening at the moment where uh, the Kremlin seems to be cracking down on Wagner, trying to bring some of Prigozhin's assets under, his, under the government's control. They conducted this raid at his house in St. Petersburg, but they don't seem to be touching the man himself. And actually, there were reports that some of the assets that were taken from Prigozhin's home were actually returned 
to him. So it's a very strange dance that's taking place. Perhaps it suggests that the Kremlin is worried that Prigozhin still has some degree of command and control over these Wagner fighters, and maybe they're worried about what his next move might be. Uh, But, you know, certainly I'm sure there are plenty of people inside Russia as well who are wondering why this guy seems to be moving freely between Belarus and Russia after leading the biggest revolt uh, against the Russian government in decades. Anton, do we take Lukashenko's word that he's free? I would not take Lukashenko's work for anything. Um, but, and, and I think he's enjoying the moment. So he's, he's enjoying being sort of game show host, uh, you know, playing this game. Was, you know, where, where is Yevgeny? Um, he, um, you know, he's, he's a source for a lot of the supposed uh, knowledge that we have on the nature of the deal. He's a guy who said, yes, uh, we've agreed to let, you know, he told the story of speaking to Vladimir Putin and speaking to Yevgeny, and he was the only man who was able to get Prigozhin's phone number and so on. So I think he's enjoying his moment in the media light. He's actually summoned some journalists over to um, to Minsk to, you know, uh, tell them the latest installment of the saga and, you know, is trying to assert his position as a, you know, as a sort of friend of Russia, but sort of slightly separate from it. You mentioned journalists. I wanted to note that the Associated Press reports that the Kremlin is open to a potential prisoner swap that could free the Wall Street Journal's jailed reporter Evan Gershkovich. The AP says the swap would involve a Russian prisoner in Ohio jailed on cyber crimes. Jen, what more do we know about this? Sure. So we don't know a ton, um, but it does seem that there are uh, some conversations happening um, behind the scenes between Moscow and Washington over this potential prisoner swap. Um, What kind of prompted this is um, on Monday... Uh, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, um, was able to actually visit uh, Evan Gershkovich at um, Lefertova prison. So that was the, the first meeting with a U.S. diplomatic official that Evan has had since April 17th. Um, so, it, so that uh, prompted a question to Dmitry Peskov at a press briefing about whether there could be a prisoner swap. We also saw the same day on Monday, um, Russian diplomats were granted consular access to this um, Russian citizen who's in U.S. custody, um, Vladimir Janayev. Um, he's, as you said, in, in custody on cybercrime charges. He was extradited from South Korea um, and is in detention in Ohio. So the fact that on the same day, uh, Russian officials were able to see him and U.S. officials were able to see Evan kind of prompted questions about whether this was leading to a prisoner swap. Now, I will say that the way Russia usually does this um, when they do have prisoners and do a prisoner swap is they um, basically almost never do a prisoner swap until the person in their custody has been kind of convicted and sentenced. And we are not at that point yet. Um, Gershkovich was arrested in March. He doesn't even have a trial date yet. So if we do see a prisoner swap, which I think is is potentially likely, um, it's probably not going to be until then or or after he has been convicted. So it's probably still going to be a while if we do see one, but I think it's certainly, you know, good signs at least. Staying with Ukraine, the U.S. military released a video earlier this week of Russian fighter jets, quote, harassing three American military drones. What does harassing mean in this context? It means flying close and in a dangerous manner that endangers um, uh, the... Uh, the aircraft in uh, in question. And we've seen an increasing number of these involving not just Russian, but also Chinese planes. I want to also mention that at least five people have been killed and 34 
have been injured in an attack on the western city of Lviv. The mayor of Lviv, Andrei Sadove, told 1A producers this was one of the worst attacks on the city since the start of the war, and he called on the United States for more support. We protect democratic values, and we need your support. We need military support, military equipment, Patriot, JET. It's a very tough situation, but today in Ukraine, we create our future. I am optimist. I believe in our victory. You must believe in our victory. Jen, remind us of the significance of this happening in Lviv and how President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have responded. Yeah, um, I actually just quickly want to note, as of this morning, there was an update. I think the death toll, according to um, Zelensky's official spokesperson, has risen to 10, unfortunately. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, Lviv is is in the West, right? It's on the border with Poland. Um, it's very far from, you know, the front lines of the war. It has generally been one of the safest places in Ukraine, you know, relatively speaking, of course, this is a country at war. Um, It has been targeted by Russia before, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian war refugees have sought safety in Lviv from the other areas to the east where the fighting is much heavier. So, you know, seeing this, which is, you know, the largest attack on Lviv's civilian infrastructure since the beginning of the war, um, is really disturbing. Uh, These missiles destroyed entire floors of a residential building, right? This is the kind of thing that we've seen, you know, over and over in other places, especially in Kiev. Um, But, you know, to see this in Lviv, to see, you know, specifically, again, civilian infrastructure being targeted by by the Russians uh, is definitely disturbing. I think, you know, we saw um, Zelensky in a response video. He said, you know, there will definitely be a response, a tangible response. Um, But I think this, again, goes back to, you know, the clip that you just played and our conversation earlier regarding the cluster munitions, et cetera. You know, there's not a ton that the Ukrainians can do more than they are already trying to do without more weapons, without more ammunition. They are already trying very hard to push the Russians back. Um, The Russians are very deeply entrenched in the east. And, you know, there's only so much they can do. They did manage, the Ukrainians did manage to shoot down some of these incoming cruise missiles, but they couldn't get them all. I think that's why we're seeing, you know, increased, um, you know, requests for more Patriot anti-missile batteries, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the Ukraine Ukrainians are trying desperately to show that this is still going on. Russia is still targeting civilians. Um, And potentially, you know, we could see more of these kinds of um, attacks farther away from the front lines as Russia also fails to kind of move forward. And while Russia is still, as we said, dealing with quite a bit of turmoil still at home with Prigozhin. So I don't think this is the last we're going to see of these attacks by any stretch. Right. The strike also targeted a UNESCO heritage buffer zone and was condemned by UNESCO. Anton, to what John's saying, does this raise questions about if Russia's changing its strategy during this war? I think it's the same strategy that they've been pursuing ever since, uh, you know, the second half of last year, which is to use um, missiles, cruise missiles and drones to disrupt life, to undermine the Ukrainian economy, to demoralize the Ukrainian population, to take out the power networks uh, when they can find them. And I think most importantly, to consume the anti-aircraft munitions that the West has been providing. They're a scarce resource. 
Um, you heard Zelensky there saying we need more Patriot batteries, but Patriot batteries are desperately short everywhere in the world. I was in Guam not so long ago, ma- America's major military hub in the Pacific, and they don't have a Patriot battery out there. So um, they're hard to come by. We'll continue to bring you more reporting from Lviv in the coming weeks. Let's move on to some climate news. If you felt the heat lately, you're not alone. Tuesday was the world's hottest day on record, beating Monday's record-breaking heat. The record-breaking days threatened to stick around with the return of El Nino and human-created climate change. Dave, it's been pretty hot here in Washington, D.C., but I think most other other parts of the world that are more affected by the heat right now— Yes, exactly. So so I was looking at one of these maps that show all the various places where they're experiencing record high temperatures. And it is an incredibly, uh, you know, spread out phenomenon. Uh, Texas and Mexico, um, that part of the world is incredibly hot right now. And there have been uh, about a dozen heat related deaths in Texas during this heat wave. Uh, there have been records in China as well. Uh, parts of Africa are experiencing record high heat and then parts of the Mediterranean. So Spain, for example, is also uh, experiencing record high heat. So it is a hot summer in quite a lot of places in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. Uh, And obviously, if you add all of those together, we're experiencing the hottest days globally this week uh, ever on record. Some are responding to this climate crisis through daily disruption. The UK eco-activist group Just Stop Oil stormed two tennis matches at Wimbledon on Wednesday. Wait, please. more orange clouds hang over a British sporting event this summer jigsaws as well in the middle of all that not not the orange dust that we've become familiar with feels like we're going to be good now for the, the afternoon and another disruption for the second time on court 18 today. So to even catch that, those groans are because three people were arrested for storming the court at Wimbledon, throwing confetti and puzzle pieces on the grass. Anton, what can you tell us about this group, Just Stop Oil? It is a spin-off from an earlier environmental activist group called um, Extinction Rebellion and um, Insulate Britain, and you know they, they are interconnected. Um, this one is more specific uh, as opposed to Extinction Rebellion, which is generally campaigning on climate change. Um, Just Stop Oil wants the British government to stop licenses for exploration for oil and gas uh, specifically. And one of their distinctive tactics has been to disrupt sporting events. So you've seen it at football matches and you've seen it even at snooker matches um, for those of you who follow snooker. It's the International News Roundup, which is why I think we just mentioned snooker. A quick reminder of our guests, foreign policies, Jen Williams, Anton LaGuardia LaGuardia from The Economist, and Dave Lawler from Axios. King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands apologized on Saturday for the royal house's role in slavery. In a speech to commemorate the anniversary of the country abolishing slavery, he asked for forgiveness, and the crowd cheered. Today I stand before you, today as your king and as a member of the government, I make this apology myself and I feel the weight of the words in my heart and my soul. Anton, how rare are these apologies from former colonial powers? They are rare but less than they used to be. Um, There is a growing recognition that um, Western countries have to come to terms with the um, 
imperial legacy, and particularly the legacy of slavery. Um, and uh, you have seen uh, the British royal family, for example, um, uh, starting to talk about this, uh, particularly in response to research showing that um, you know, members of the royal family had benefited directly from the slave trade, as indeed did the Dutch royal house. Um, the question is, uh, you know, beyond uh, apologies and, and hand-wringing and um, squirming uh, by the uh, royals, the remaining royals of Europe, what can be done about it and whether any um, uh, amends can be made, particularly on the question of reparations, which is um, more difficult um, in the case of uh, you know, slavery in, ge- in, in general in that, you know, unlike colonial things like, um, you know, the Benin bronzes, which, you know, you can restitute, you can give back artifacts, you can um, offer compensation reparations to a country like Namibia over the genocide of the Herero, I think uh, slavery is a much more complex issue. Crowds in former Dutch colonies watched the king's speech, but it wasn't enough for everyone, to your point, Anton. Here's one woman from Suriname. I am still looking forward to um, something more than just apologies, reparations, for example. Uh, The king said something about healing and repairing, but not necessarily about reparations, which are very important for our community to heal. And I'm not only talking about monetary reparations, but also institutionally and structurally. Were Were reparations discussed, Dave? Is that on the table? Uh, They don't seem to be on the table. So Mark Rutte, the uh, prime minister of the Netherlands, had previously apologized for the role of the the Dutch state. Of course, the king was apologizing in part for the role his own family played uh, in the slave trade. But but, um, the prime minister in his previous apology said that uh, the government was not prepared to pay financial reparations, uh, but would invest in some sort of cultural, uh, you know, discovery, looking into the history, uncovering what exactly happened here, uh, but not paying to the descendants. I think governments are very wary of opening that box. I mean, how much do you owe to generations of a family that was displaced from uh, Africa, say, and moved to the Caribbean and Dutch territory? Uh, You know, I think that the governments are very wary of trying to put a dollar figure around that, and the Dutch don't seem to be an exception there. Just as an aside, though, I, I remember when there was this big debate around the legacy of the British Empire a few years ago. There was, you know, uh, statues were torn down. And I was talking to a British colleague at the time who said the Dutch had this big empire and they don't seem to feel any sense of, of, you know, shame about the way that they, uh, you know, carried on uh, centuries ago. It turns out it's reached the Netherlands as well. It's at least on the question of slavery. uh, There does seem to be more uh, soul searching and, and, you know, recognition that not everything that happened in the imperial past was glorious and a lot of it was actually actually quite uh, terrible. And so uh, it's interesting to watch this kind of spread across the continent. Let's end with a story we've been following closely. Sweden's bid for NATO membership. Sweden applied shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine, but the move was blocked by Turkey, who accused Sweden of harboring PKK terrorists. Last week, the burning of a Quran in Stockholm further angered Turkey. Anton, NATO's meeting this week in Vilnius, Lithuania, but the ball's back in Turkish President Erdogan's court this week on Sweden joining the alliance. What do we know about NATO's moves to get him to budge on this? Well, everyone's trying to talk to him and convince him to uh, agree. It is uh, the tyranny of 
the rules on unanimity for membership of NATO. One country can block everybody else. Uh, traditionally, NATO works on unanimity rule, uh, but you know, America has great uh, you know, persuasive power because it's the biggest power. But on this question, it has really struggled to get Erdogan to move. He did split the difference. He let the Finns in, but has held out against the Swedes. The hope had been that he would relent in time for this summit, particularly now that he has gone through his own election, has been safely re-elected. Um, but I think the Quran burning makes it a lot more difficult. Although it was intended as a provocation, I think it will, he will indeed be provoked by it. Uh, and uh, it just makes it much more difficult. And he will also, no doubt, try to extract further concessions from allies. What those might be is unclear. There is an F-16 deal uh, in the works, which is being held up over it. But I'm not sure that he really cares that much over F-16s. He is, of course, suspicious of his own army, given the coup attempt uh, that he experienced. So we are at the end of our hour, but I want to ask all of you before we go what you're working on this week or what you're watching for in the coming week. Jen? Yeah, I'm keeping an eye on the um, kind of aftermath of the elections in Guatemala. Um, This week, the country's constitutional court suspended certification of the results pending a review of votes. So uh, definitely keeping a close eye to see what happens there. A lot of things in play. Dave? Uh, Jen, I can't believe that you stole the answer that I was going to go for there, but I'll I'll instead (laughs) say (laughs) it is a big story. I'll also be watching the NATO summit and how they handle this question of future membership in the alliance for Ukraine. It's a very sticky issue with a lot of allies divided. Anton? And Dave has stolen my answer. (laughs) So um, I'll just say I'm looking forward um, to his new job as uh, now that he gives up the Axios World um, uh, newsletter. Thank you very much, sir. Anton, is there anything that we missed from this week that you wanted to talk about? Uh, No, I think we've covered a huge amount of ground. (laughs) Yes, we have certainly covered the world. (laughs) All right. Well, enough time to thank everybody here. A big thank you to Jen Williams, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy, host of the Negotiators podcast, Anton LaGuardia, diplomatic editor at The Economist and author of Holy Land, Unholy War, Israelis and Palestinians, and Dave Lawler, senior world reporter at Axios and author of the Axios World Newsletter. Glad I get to say that one last time, Dave. Thank you. And one more piece of news before we go. In Australia this week, 5,838 people broke a world record for the most people dancing the Nutbush. The line dance is performed to Tina Turner's hit Nutbush City Limits. The event is one of many Nutbush City Limits fundraisers and world record attempts. This event was hosted by the Birdsville Big Red Bash in the Simpson Desert in Central Australia. The event was accompanied by tributes to Turner, who died in May. My Kid is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo from Axios Today. This is 1A.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Imagine a house where every room follows a different architect's plan. Doorways don't connect. Staircases lead nowhere. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our complicated system for treating psychosis, one that loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. We'll ask how it got so bad and how it can get better. Listen to Lost Patients from KOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.